Hey, if you listen to this podcast week after week, then you will absolutely love my books. There's Travel Light, which basically gives you all of the steps for following your heart. And then there's Knowing Where to Look, which is full of inspirational stories and anecdotes that will help you shift your perspective in the most inspiring way. And for those of you who can't seem to crack the meditation code, grab a copy of Bliss More, How to Succeed in Meditation Without Really Trying, and your meditation practice will never be the same. All of those books are available on Amazon, as well as everywhere else books are sold. That's Travel Light, Knowing Where to Look, and Bliss More. All right, back to the show. I mean, I was ground zero, really. And I remember going there, and again, the clown was coming, and the town was kind of silent, and I was sort of walking around with my camera. I saw a couple people in suits, white people in suits. Nobody wore suits at that time in Meridian, Mississippi. It was hot. So eventually the clan marched and started to come together. There wasn't that many people. At one point, at the head of the march, there was an older guy, and I was walking backwards taking pictures and I was looking in the viewfinder of the camera and I saw this really big guy, white guy of course, I mean red hair, with this really funny grin on his face and the person I had been photographing with him also was grinning at the same time. It was like, that is not a good sign. I looked up and this guy was just huge but and I say this with due respect to whoever this person was. I mean he had an IQ lower than room temperature. You could just see it in his eyes. And he just smiled and grinning, and he just clobbered me, and I went flying. The first and second thing you do in nonviolent training, which is you curl up to protect your organs, and I put the camera there too. <laughs> and then they threw me into a car, and that's when you said, you were ever scared. I thought, oh man, this is not cool, you know. Hello there, it's Light Watkins, your host of At the End of the Tunnel. So on this podcast, I interview individuals who have gone above and beyond to be the change that they want to see in the world. And together, we connect the dots from their childhood to now. And what we almost always discover is that pretty much everything they experience, all the seemingly disconnected moments along their path, came into use when they found their life's purpose. You ever notice how in the movies, if somebody is working as a mechanic in the opening scene of the movie, you know there's going to be a plot point somewhere in the dramatic third act where the stakes are high and that same mechanic is going to be the only person who's able to get that stranded car on the side of the road started so that the crew of heroes can escape from certain death. In other words, whatever you're doing right now is a part of your greater purpose, whether you realize it or not. And that's why I like to share these stories. It's not just to hear a delightful conversation with somebody who's taken a leap of faith. It's also to remind all of us, myself included, that there are no throwaway moments in life. And even if it doesn't seem like you're living a life of purpose today, there's a pretty good chance that you're certainly preparing for it by doing whatever you happen to be doing now, which may be homeschooling or taking care of a sick parent or working in a toll booth. You're learning something valuable that's going to play a key role in the third act of your life. Anyway, my guest today is author, speaker, and environmental journalist Paul Hawken. So for those of you who are not familiar with his work, Paul grew up poor in California. And due to a health condition and a bit of family drama, Paul found at a very early age that it wasn't safe for him to be inside. So 
he began developing a love for the outdoors, and he would spend countless hours exploring all aspects of nature. And he later learned how to grow things and how to care for plants. But what he was really learning ultimately was how interconnected nature is. And this would play a pivotal role decades later in what would become his life's work of amplifying the importance of regenerative agriculture. Anyway, Paul left home at 14 because he felt safer on the streets than he felt at home. And then a few years later, he found himself at the forefront of the civil rights movement down in Alabama and Mississippi and New Orleans, where he was volunteering with Dr. King and John Lewis. And so he tells some pretty harrowing stories about that, including that one moment in the teaser where he was kidnapped after being seen taking photos of the Ku Klux Klan. Obviously, he got away, and then later he found himself in Boston taking over one of the very first health food stores in that city, which was his little one-man operation called Erewhon. That name should ring a bell for those of you who are living in Los Angeles, because Paul's Erewhon was the first location of what became the popular health food store in Los Angeles decades later. So he was responsible for that. And his relationships with the vendors of Erewhon led Paul to develop an even deeper understanding of the importance of protecting the environment. And then that led to his environmental journalism. And now he's written or contributed to several dozen books about the environment. And he's one of the foremost environmental advocates in the world today. He's spoken all over the place and he's just prolific in every sense of the word. I was fortunate to meet Paul a few years ago at a wellness conference in Arizona, and we've got a lot of mutual associates in common. So I was super excited to reconnect with him on this podcast and do a deeper dive into his story. And we talked a lot about the early days in the civil rights movement. As many of you know, I'm from Montgomery, Alabama, where the civil rights movement essentially started. I lived just down the street from Dr. King's Dexter Avenue Baptist Church. And of course, I'm also a huge fan of Erewhon, having lived in Los Angeles for several years. So it was awesome to hear how that all started back in Boston. And ever since I interviewed Ryland Englehart a few episodes ago, who Paul also knows and he's mentored, I've also been super inspired about regenerative agriculture. And one of the most enlightening parts of our conversation was when we spoke about the importance of George Washington Carver and the Tuskegee Institute on the science of farming forward. Tuskegee was just down the street from where I grew up. So yeah, it was an awesome conversation. I cannot wait to share it with you. But first, I want to let you know about my online community, which is called the Happiness Insiders. The Happiness Insiders basically picks up where this podcast leaves off. As I mentioned earlier, the overall goal of these conversations is to remind all of us that we have a greater purpose. And while it's one thing to know that, it's another thing to actually do something about it. And so that's the goal of the Happiness Insiders. It's a community of individuals who are committed first to cultivating happiness within through various inner practices like meditation and gratitude and weekly goal setting. And then to take that which we cultivate and use it to become more purposeful in life. So if you feel ready for that type of adventure, you can find more information about that at thehappinessinsiders.com, which I will also include in the show notes. And in the meantime, let's get to my inspiring conversation with Paul Hawken and find out more about his decades-long path that led him to find his calling. Paul, thanks so much for coming on to At the End of the Tunnel. I'm super excited to have you on the podcast and to share your 
amazing, fantastical, <laughs> crazy story of how you got into all the things you're doing, the wonderful things you're doing for the environment today, and to talk about the backstory to some of that. So thanks for coming on and, and being so open to sharing your story with listeners. Uh, thank you, Light. It's interesting. You'll probably ask questions for which I will think and wonder and then recall and share in a way probably that I haven't done before because most people don't ask about that. In fact, <laughs> right. They go right to the environment, talk about regeneration. But I want to talk about how you were reared in the world to start with. I read that you were born in San Mateo, raised in the San Francisco Bay Area. Sometimes that stuff is not accurate, though. So if there's anything that I say that wasn't accurate, feel free to correct me. Thinking back to little Paul, earlier memories, you know, five, six, seven years old like that. Do you recall any favorite toys or activities as a child? Somebody asked me a question a few years ago. I don't remember the question, but I remember the answer that came out of my mouth is one I'm going to share with you, which I had never said before, which is that when I grew up, it wasn't safe inside my home. It was safe outside. What I love most is being outside. And the thing that I noticed, and it's obvious, I think, to all of us, is that if you're four or five or six years old, you can master the inside of a house in a couple hours. You know, here's the bathroom, here's the kitchen, here's the refrigerator, here's the light switches. If you had a TV, which we didn't, then here's the TV switch. And that gets about pretty much it. When you go outside, you don't know what's happening. You don't know the names of things. You pick up a rock and things crawl away, things fly in, there's noises, there's sounds. And for me, what it developed like was curiosity. Like, what's that? What's that? You know, all kids have curiosity, basically, I think. But you don't develop it looking at a screen or being inside. You develop it, or at least I developed it, being outside. And I think that curiosity has never left me. And the other thing that's never left me is that I feel really safe outside. I grew up in the Sierra Nevadas. We had fires. We had floods. And to me, it was like, it was cool. It was okay. We dealt with it, but I always felt like I was in good hands and where other people say, there's a disaster. I'm going, not really. I mean, it, it, it means she's in charge and that's who I'd rather have in charge <laughs> than human beings. I mean, really, there was this thing of human beings, you know, or the earth. And I think I'll take the earth. Hey there, really quickly. Have you wanted to find your purpose or be more grateful or start a daily meditation practice, but you're not quite sure where to begin? Well, if inner work is like a drop of water, thehappinessinsiders.com is like your ocean. That's my online community where you can learn real-world techniques for cultivating more fulfillment from the inside out. So whether it's learning how to manifest abundance or access your potential or overcome fear or even just start walking every day, I've got a blueprint for you, which means you no longer have to use any more shoddy guesswork and you don't have to use the lone wolf approach to improving yourself. For a small accountability fee, you'll get community, you'll get accountability directly from me, and you'll get comprehensive instructions for getting your meditation practice off the ground. And for my podcast listeners, you'll receive 30% off of the all access pass if you go to thehappinessinsiders.com right now and use the promo code HAPPY. Again, 
thehappinessinsiders.com. Enter the promo code HAPPY and you'll get 30% off on a yearly all-access pass, which gives you access to dozens of inner work challenges and masterclasses such as my 108-day meditation challenge, which has an 80% completion rate. Plus, you get to join me live for weekly meditations on Zoom and much, much more. That's thehappinessinsiders.com. The code is HAPPY. All right, back to the episode. What was the vibe like in the house? I mean, you said well, you didn't feel safe. You don't have to go into details about that if you don't want to, but I'm um, just curious, were your parents around? Were there siblings? Was it like a religious vibe or was it kind of free flowing or what was that like inside your house? Yeah, I had asthma from six months old, one of the earliest cases recorded in San Mateo. And so I had to... The way they treated asthma then was to give you a shot every day, I mean, in your arm. And I guess they were inoculating you with dust and things you were allergic to, pollen and chocolate and milk, and I don't know what it was. And they also did it on your back, scratch tests. Hmm. So every day I had to have a painful injection. My father did it. And so that was not pleasant. Second... My father and mother fought and I could hear them fighting. And it was, you know, when you're a child, anger, like that kind of anger really is greatly amplified. I think, you know, just it's shocking. You know, you're not used to it yet. Someday you get used to it. But anger is always shocking on some level. Either it comes from you or comes at you or it's come and you're just watching it. And the third thing was that I couldn't breathe very well inside. And so... At a certain point, when you can't breathe or you wake up and you're not breathing well and so forth, your adrenaline kicks in, and that does open up the alveoli in the lungs. But, boy, you get into fight or flight because that's hardwired, you know, like what's going on and this and what can I do? And so there's both a feeling of helplessness but also a feeling of threat. All those were associated with being inside. And outside, for whatever reason, I guess maybe it was during the day or whatever it was, but I just, I didn't have those experiences and I had pets and birds and things and in a garden and and things like that. And so I had this relationship, you know, which to me was so beautiful, you know, and rabbits, you know, I mean, just, they were just, all the creatures were beautiful. And when I come home from school, I always put little cornmeal in the cuff. I had jeans and they had cuffs. At that time, you had cuffs and jeans. You never wore them straight legs. And I put food in and then the duck would run to me and start eating out of my uh, pant cuffs, you know, things like that. So the joys I associated with having in life were outside. And inside was kind of a mess. And it never stopped, really. I left home when I was 14. And I lived on the streets, but I felt in some ways safer on the streets than I felt inside. You also mentioned that you learned how to read pretty early on and you were a bookworm and you won some contests and that your mom later on told you that when you were around four years old, you said that you were going to become a writer. Do you have any recollection of any of that, like how that started to develop as you were growing older? Well, I certainly recollect the books. I, my mom would keep me in bed. Because she mm-hmm. thought that if I was outside or exercising, that, you know, I could get asthma from dust or pollen or something like that. So she would keep me in bed. 
And I did have asthma. I mean, I was in bed with asthma. It wasn't just speculative. And so I did start to be just before I was four years old. And I don't think any child should, by the way. That's a different question. So I started to check out books, you know, at the library. And I just whipped through them. (laughs) There was no TV. There was no distraction. There was no radio. There was no devices. There was nothing. Books are it. You know, that's your window into the world, into stories, into narratives, into people, into heroes and heroes and myths, uh, archetypes, really. And so my mother told me later that I said that. I don't remember saying that at all, but I, you know, I was sort of omnivorous in terms of reading. And, you know, they had books, they had Shakespeare, they had, you know, Longfellow and poets and things like that. (laughs) And to me, they were all words and people, and I didn't really think of them as highbrow or lowbrow poetry or stories or cowboy stories. So to, me, to me, it was just all all the same. It did have a big influence. I didn't think of it much as that until I started to write, of course, and I realized that I never was trained as a writer. I never went to, I mean, I was an English major in a number of years I was in college, but I never went to a writing class. But I feel like the way to way to write is to read and i mean if you can be a great musician go listen to music really <laughs> not right. just not just try to play there was an incident with uh african violet that sort of changed your relationship with nature can you talk about that my parents had divorced we were living in oakdale california we were just so poor we had cornflakes and powdered milk for christmas you know yeah. <laughs> And there was a woman down the street, she was in her 70s or 80s, she was so nice to me, and she grew African violets everywhere in these little pots, you know, clay pots. So she gave me some, and and she also taught me, and she gave me cuttings. You take a leaf of African violet, and you put it and take care of it, it'll produce a plant. And to me, it was just, it was important to come home from school, you know, and go look at the violets in the morning when I woke up. I mean water them and all that sort of stuff. And one day, I don't know what, how I got it. I really don't know whether I saw it or somebody gave it to me. I really don't know, but it was just a, a canister of plant food. And it was pink and it was little tiny balls, you know, plant food. And I put it on my plants. I thought, okay, plant food. You know. And the next day they were all dead. And that really did have a big impact. I don't know why I felt like in a way, those plants were my family, you know, that I was nurturing and, and then they were dead and I did it. But it also, there was two things that produced this kind of sense of distrust in the way the world worked. And I put that in quote marks. That was one of them. And the other one was that when I was a child growing with asthma, I was taken again and again to, it was Kaiser Permanente. It was a hospital system and got shots and this and that, and, and nothing ever worked. So it got to the point where if I walked into a building and there was a receptionist there, I wouldn't want to go in. <laughs> it's like, it was dangerous, you know, it was not cool. And so that profound distrust of the medical establishment and then the distrust of, I wouldn't call it agricultural at that time, but that is to say chemicals, plants, you know, there was like a real cautionary red flag went up when I was young and it stayed with me both of them stayed with me
you mentioned your parents split up as well. And I know you stayed with aunts and uncles at some point. Later on in your life and in your career, you talk a lot about the othering of our society. And I'm just curious, did someone point that out to you when you were a kid? Like, what was the the genesis of that awareness that I'm a white kid and there are other races and society is saying that these races are not as good as this other race and making sense of all of that for yourself? Yeah, that's a good question. I mean, I grew up in Berkeley, which is, you know, a very liberal university town. And West Berkeley was a black neighborhood. And black neighborhoods in the Bay Area very much arose during the war. Mm -hmm. Because Sausalito, Marin City, definitely Oakland, Berkeley, African-Americans were brought up from the South to work, to build ships, you know, the Liberty ships and, and to parts and pieces and steels, the steel, Kaiser Steel was in Oakland and so forth. And so growing up in a city with primarily black, there was Asian Americans there too, more related to the university in some ways, but not entirely. There wasn't really so much Latinx, you know, at that time in Berkeley, but there was definitely, you know, African-Americans. So I grew up with African-American friends and Jewish friends and white friends and when you're little, you don't make distinctions that way, you know. You get taught to make that distinction. It's not that, it doesn't mean you can't see color or, or difference, but seeing difference is not the same as thinking that somebody is different. You know, those are two different things. So children have a natural innocence about that as we see again and again and so forth, you know, and all the antipathies and prejudices and beliefs are taught to us by something, the media, by people, by our parents, by whatever. So I didn't get taught that at an early age. I, I learned that I learned about it later, and I could see it in school, especially by, by the time I got to high school in Berkeley. I mean, you could see it had, had definitely split. You know, there was two communities. But I think that being involved with the civil rights movement was just like, well, yeah, it just didn't make sense not to. You know, given how I grew up and where I grew up and my friends, you know, I mean, I can name them, my black friends, you know, Charlie Darden. I mean, I, I mean, you know, I dated you know, black women and we just never thought about it. And then when the civil rights movement started, it was like, wow, it, it was almost incredible that that was going on. You know, this is 1963, you know, it's like, come on, you know, haven't we grown up? I just couldn't believe that America was that racist. And then when I got there, that was incredible. Just that experience was just incredible in terms of seeing, oh my God, racist, that's a polite term. You drove from the Bay Area to Selma? Yeah, yeah. Did you go by yourself? No, there's a car full of volunteers, you know, like five of us, I think four or five of us. And we didn't have any money. That was the cheapest way to get there. What was the plan? We're just going to march, protest? Were you going to potentially put yourself in harm's way? At that time, I mean, I'm not saying there weren't plans, but it was on the come pretty much, you know, SCLC and SNCC and CORE, you know, the three major African-American organizations and so forth. Definitely had management and planning and meetings and so forth. But at the same time, they were moving with very rapidly changing situations, you know, and so forth. It wasn't they could plan this whole thing. And 
And those situations usually involve violence or arrests or worse to respond to, you know. And we as little, you know, cute little white boys and girls <laughs> going down south, it was like, well, we just want to help, you know. We didn't know what we were going to do. And we just assumed that help is needed, you know, and it was, especially in Selma, but as a campaign, because that was one that was building. It wasn't like Birmingham where you just, you know, they killed the children, they bombed the church. It was like, there was no campaign after that. It was shock and just horror. Whereas Selma really started, and I think it's oftentimes lost, you know, it was started by 12, 13, 14 year olds. It didn't start with Martin Luther King. It didn't start with any civil rights leaders. These kids were the bravest kids I've ever met in my life. They're the ones who start marching across the bridge. You know, they're the ones who are marching to Montgomery. They're the ones who are getting their asses kicked with truncheons and German shepherds and stuff. And it was really finally when that went on the news, you know, and you, you could see it and nationwide is when really, you know, so Lewis and Abernathy and King and, and Jesse, all those people started to come in, you know, in solidarity. But before that happened, it was a youth movement. It was out of the high school. And some of those people, of course, are still alive. And I just don't think they get as much credit as they deserve, put it that way. You became the press coordinator? By default. It was happening so fast. And then, so the the main event was across the street at the church. And then we were in a, a kind of annex to the church across the street. Once there was the... I mean, I don't, it's like a near massacre, you know, when Lewis was being conscious and, you know, I mean, the police just went crazy and the sheriff went crazy. And when that happened, you know, that worm turned, you know, and people started pouring, the press started to pour in from all over the world and volunteers poured in, of course, and people were getting ready for the march. You know, they were going to do the march, no matter hell or high water, they were going to do the march and then keep going at it. The Justice Department got involved by that time. John Doerr and others and Lyndon Johnson and so forth, because it gotten so far removed from any basis of sanity or civility. So I was asked to just register press and the, the registering the press was really about safety. It wasn't about the press conference or giving press releases. It was just registering press, you know, who are you, where are you from, what are your next of kin, what are the phone numbers, check in, you know, make sure you're okay, you know, because people were getting killed. So it was really just a matter of registration. So for, occasionally I was asked to give interviews just because so many people wanted interviews from all over the world, phones, and it was all phone, really. And there was TV there for the networks. Do you remember being afraid for your life at times during that month that you were in Selma? I wasn't afraid. I was in the Black community. And in the Black community, you couldn't be safer. That was, mm -hmm. you were safe. You know, that was interesting to have a figure around shift, you know, like the, if you're white, where are you safe in the Black community? No. Nope. <laughs> but in the South, they could tell a block away, they being that as resident Southerners, you know, in these different cities, that you were a civil rights worker. I don't know. I mean, it's just like they had a, a target on your chest. Right. Like you're white, you had hair, you know, you had t-shirt, you know, so what, what is the identifying marker? They knew just instantly. 
And so you knew where not to go. I mean, it was real clear. You know, you didn't dare cross a certain street into a certain block until you, you just didn't do it. If you did, you get your ass chased out of there or kicked or worse. So I never felt fear there. No. When we marched into Montgomery, the final night, it was at the high school and it was raining and that there's a bus, there was a bus there, there was a stage, like a big boxing stage, you know, boxing ring, you know, but a stage. And all these entertainers would come in, you know, Joan Baez and Sammy Davis Jr. and the Kingston Trio and Odetta. I mean, it was really, and, I, and I, my job was to guard the bus. <laughs> <laughs> so I met all these really, really, Leonard Bernstein was there. I mean, really, really cool people, you know, who were so nice. And they were actually freaked out. They shouldn't be. There was 10,000 or I don't know how many thousands of black faces around them. They, were, they couldn't have been in a safer place, really. <laughs> but they were definitely nervous. And everybody was nervous. Everybody was on edge. So I, I shouldn't just say just not just them. Oh, man, the thing I remember most, I remember a lot of things, obviously, but the next morning, then we are marshals that are no longer press coordinators. We have these orange vests, you know, we're marshals, you know, and our job is just to get people in a line. <laughs> it's nothing more. And obviously, you know, Martin Luther King and everybody came in last, you know, and they're at the front of the march. But this busload showed up not long before it was about ready to go and outpiled all these white people from Boston. And they had flown, I guess, during the night uh, somehow, or a red eye, I don't know, where maybe they stayed. So I don't know where they came from, but they came in early that morning and they were obviously tired. And they wanted to be at the head of the march, not the very head, but behind Martin Luther King, you know. And, you know, we talk about white privilege and I was explaining to them, no, you kind of get at the end where the march is forming, <laughs> like just like everybody else, you know? I mean, you came late, you're, that's where you are. What I remember was that the young men and women who were the initial marchers across that bridge in Selma were listening and watching. And I was so embarrassed and just like this why people, you know, who felt privileged, obviously, that they deserve to be there because why? I don't know. They just came in or, and watching those kids watch them and listen. And actually, I don't think it was an unfamiliar conversation. That's the thing. Mm. They weren't shocked. They weren't surprised. <laughs> you know, like, mm hmm. Y'all want to take credit for, <laughs> for, for being here and, so I, that was excruciating for me just to see that given everything that so many had done, you know, prior to that moment and for them to try to insert themselves. But the march itself then took place and then it was so amazing because snaking to Montgomery to the state house and there wasn't a single person on the street. Nobody. And my guessing was if you were the whites, we, we went through a white, we're going to a white neighborhood for sure, not affluent, mm -hmm. the opposite. And sometimes you'd see a curtain or shade pull back. 
you know, like somebody's peeking out, but you wouldn't see anybody in front of the house or on the street. And I don't think black people who lived there felt safe on the street watching it. So you didn't see black people either and so forth. So we were going to the city and people were saying we should overcome and stuff like that, you know, with Joan Baez up there belting away and you know, <laughs> but so you were this there was song and, and the song was rippling back through this all, all the people in the march, you know, you could say, but and chants and things like that. But it was also stony, silent and absent everywhere, right up to the state house. There was nobody there except when we got there, there was police, of course. We see so many iconic photos nowadays of that time. What is something that you wouldn't know just from looking at a photograph if you weren't actually there? And that sounds like something that's not obvious. Yeah. It's pitch quiet on the streets. Yeah, that wasn't, um, maybe somebody videoed it, but there was no videographers doing that. They were mm-hmm. there at the state house to see the speech and, you know, and all that sort of stuff in the crowd. But from that night at the, you know, people sleeping on wet grass. And I mean, it was, it was not a fun night. <laughs> and a lot of people didn't sleep, I think. And people were tired, you know, and people, the marchers themselves, I think, were tired. There wasn't well, 300 some odd marchers, you know, but. It was so surreal, the whole thing. And hey, you know, things changed, you know, that it did change voting rights, which are in question again, oddly enough. Can you talk about the encounter with the KKK? Well, I went down again. I went back home after Selma at some point. And so I went back home and then I volunteered again to work for CORA, Congress of Racial Equality, and Jim Farmer. And we were stationed in New Orleans. And, you know, and you go through your nonviolent training and somewhere, I forget where it was. And then, you know, you're in New Orleans in the office. And my job as a photographer, my father was a photographer. So that's what I knew to do, what to do. And it was always a little funny to be a photographer because you had the marchers and then you had crowds, you know, yelling, screaming, and... <laughs> <laughs> at the marchers, you know, and you're in between the two, you know, <laughs> you're like, mm, mm. <laughs> and, and sometimes people took out their aggression on you because you're closer and they assumed if you're photographing it, then you must be a nigger lover, you know, as they used to say down there, that was, you were empathetic to them. And so, and so it was always a little perilous. You had to sort of have eyes in the back of your head. But at one point, it was again John Dorgan, but it was the Justice Department after Cheney, Schroeder, and Goodman were tortured and murdered in Meridian, Mississippi, and then buried. And then they were, it was discovered, it was found out, and it was obviously the Klan. And the court ordered that the Klan could no longer march with hoods. So they were going to march in Meridian, and so somebody from the office said, would you go there and photograph in Meridian? And I hadn't been in Meridian, you know. I mean, that was ground zero, really. <laughs> <laughs> and I remember going there, and again, the clam was coming, and the town was kind of silent, and I was sort of walking around with my camera, and I saw a couple people in suits, or white people in suits. Nobody wore suits at that time in Meridian, Mississippi. It was hot, you know. I mean, what are you doing mm-hmm. suits? And uh, obviously, you're not from Mississippi. So eventually the Klan marched and started to come together. There wasn't that many people, really. And I had a Pentax. That was my camera. At one point, at the head of the march, there was an older guy, and I was walking backwards. 
taking pictures. And I was looking at the viewfinder of the camera and I saw this really big guy, white guy, of course, I mean, red hair, with this really funny grin on his face. And the person I'd been photographing with him also was grinning at the same time. It was like, that is not a good sign. I, I looked up and this guy was just huge, but, and I would say this with due respect to whoever this person was. I mean, I mean, he had an IQ lower than room temperature. You could just see it in his eyes. And he just smiled and grinning and he just, he used his fist this way, but he just like, boom, you know, clobbered me and I went flying. And the first and second thing you do in nonviolent training, which is you curl up to protect your organs. And I put the camera there too. <laughs> Got the pictures. <laughs> and then they threw me into a car. And that's when you said you were ever scared. I thought, oh man, this is not cool. You know, <laughs> that was the only time I, not the only time, excuse me, but the time I felt this is stupid. You know, I'm, it's funny. I was blaming myself. You know? Anyway, and uh, started driving away and they were pulled over right away by another car. And in this other car, they began yelling at each other, fighting, but they knew each other, which is so interesting. Mm. And I, I mean, I'm an imitated conversation, you know, but it was like, Jim, I, I told you we have to stop that shit around here, you know, and I'm like, well, the car that pulled them over was the FBI, but they, they all went to high school together. They knew each other, <laughs> they football together, and mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Oh, you, know, you got to stop that shit, you know, I'm going like that. And so <laughs> you're the back of the car. About I to get the other car, yeah, and they drove me right to the police station. The police station booked me and put me in jail, so for disturbing the peace, you know. <laughs> they put you in jail. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> oh my God! But that's but you know, one of the real benefits of being there. There's many benefits, but one benefit was to see hate really so close up. So close, you know, instead of reading about hate or trying to understand it, you know, Northern Ireland, Rwanda, you know, the, the, the Tutsis and the Hutu, and, you know, you, you, you read about all these situations where people are polarized and acted out. But when you see it, it's very helpful for me to understand how that can get embedded, embedded generationally as well, of course, you know, I mean, mm-hmm. like, like a something you pass on, you see it in the Mideast, you see it obviously in Israel and the Palestinian conflict, you know, you see these ancient antipathies, you know, just alive and well today. And how does that happen? And why? And why do we do that? And, you know, all that sort of stuff. So, I mean, the civil rights movement is very, very, very helpful in that way. Two other things I wanted to just point out was the photographers were some of the most important figures during the movement, you know, because that's what King emphasized a lot was we need these images out broadcast as widely as possible. So you guys were kind of like the Instagram of that day, <laughs> you know, yeah. documenting this stuff. And then number two, the nonviolent training. I think people don't appreciate how intense that was when people are beating on you and you're supposed to look at them as you're not supposed to see hate in them and all of this. And you're supposed to essentially subject yourself to this type of treatment. Yeah. It's so interesting. I mean, the origin of nonviolent training in, in the civil rights movement, you know, because it came from Gandhi and Ahimsa, but it, it came through Martin Luther King and SLC. It came there 
during the Mon- Montgomery bus boycott when Rosa Parks wouldn't give up her seat for a white man, you know, on the bus. And she had been trained actually already in Tennessee in nonviolent sense. People don't understand that. She wasn't like, oh, I don't think I'm, I don't think so. No, she had been trained that summer by Miles Horton in Tennessee. Miles Horton was a sort of a devotee of, of Gandhi. And so she knew exactly what she was doing. And what was so amazing about Rosa Parks is she was, when the bus door opened up that night in December, the bus driver was somebody who had physically manhandled her and thrown her off a bus years earlier. Mm-hmm. I mean, that was enough for anybody, male, white, woman, black woman, that I'm taking the next bus, right? <laughs> she didn't. She got on that bus. And that's one of the acts of courage that you don't hear about so much about Rosa Parks, you know, is just getting on that friggin' bus that night, knowing who the driver was. And anyway... The boycott was started by another woman, Montgomery, uh, and they hired this handsome, eloquent preacher from Atlanta, <laughs> Martin Luther King, and he came there. And within, I think, a month or two, very shortly thereafter, people had set up a dynamite explosion in his front porch when his wife, Coretta, and his children were there. He was at church, and he was furious. And like any father protective of his family and and then a, lo- a lot of attention came to Montgomery just like it did Salma you know later and you know Bayard Rustin came down and you know some really the, the leaders of the civil rights movement at that time came down Bayard Rustin he never went down south because if there's anything worse than being a black civil rights worker is being a gay black civil rights worker, and that was by Rustin, who spoke the King's English and was so handsome and hurt. And they were all down there, and when they met at his home, they sat down everywhere, and they discovered there was the rifles and guns under the Christians. <laughs> and that's when they started talking to King about violence and nonviolence. Have you heard of Gandhi? And he said, yeah, I've heard of him. And then this Methodist preacher from Texas said, well, let me send you a book. <laughs> about Gandhi and darn if King read that whole book in one week less than a week and that Sunday his preaching changed completely that was was the turning point you know he he got it he understood it and it was just pivotal for him and so I think that nonviolent resistance is that legacy from that day or that, you know, from the, the bombing and in his house and then leaders getting together and, and Martin Luther King being educated about, you know, Mahatma Gandhi. And so mm. these beautiful little lineages, you know, you look at them now, you're looking back and you go, these connections that could have been not made, you know, just as much as made. I mean, I think Martin Luther King soon could have been killed, frankly, because he would have defended his home. And that was like, oh, great, a, a black man with a gun, <laughs> shoot it. <laughs> you know, that's, right. that's what they would have done. And we never would have had what followed from that. So, I mean, they eventually did shoot, by the way. He didn't have a gun. But he knew then that he was target practice. This experience, like you say, you know, it's one thing to read about it, and then another thing to actually experience it. This could potentially become a foundation for your perspective and your work that helped to shape how you are now approaching talking about the environment. And you didn't invent this perspective, but you're very passionate about this idea that really there's not an issue with 
the planet. It's an issue with us treating each other like we're disconnected. So we're going to get there in a second. I want to now go to Boston, but you were around your early 20s at this time. And, and I know that your asthma started to go into remission. And, and what sort of epiphanies did you did you come up with during that time around your own personal health? Well, I was in San Francisco. I was a full-blown hippie. And, and somebody gave me a book that said, if you're sick, it's your fault. And I had a <laughs> six-month-old and I was like, well, F you, you know, I mean, I, it was my fault when I was six months old. Give me a break, you know. But there was something in it that rang true, which is more like it's your responsibility. No one else's responsibility. And if you don't take responsibility, then that's it. And what the book was prescribing, it was a macrobiotic book, and it was saying, you know, 10-day rice diet, you know, just rice, brown rice and tea, like a wheat green tea. And so that's what I did for 10 days. And for the first time in my life, I was asymptomatic and didn't have to take any medicine. I was taking medicine like crazy, aminophilin and ephedrine, three times more than was allowed, you know, recommended just to keep breathing. And I was like, wait a minute. <laughs> all this time <laughs> I've been taking all these drugs and you know all this other stuff and 10 days on rice it just boggled my mind that something so simple could be so effective and and why do we know about it and what about all the other 14 million asthmatics and just like the whole thing so what I did then is because I was on a, essentially a food fast, rice essentially, then I started eating other things. And I actually didn't like the idea of not being able to go back to milkshakes and hamburgers and fast junk food and stuff like that. Enjoyed it a lot. And so I started adding one thing at a time and seeing how I felt, my breathing, my lungs, everything. And from beer to apple juice, you know, from cottage cheese to a beef patty and so forth. And I could really feel the impact that food had. Is it different than fasting, like, you know, where you have nothing? So anything you take in is going to be you know, kind of uh, talk to the system in a way. But so I was food fasting, so I was fine. I had enough protein and carbs and stuff, you know. And I just became convinced that if I can figure this out, a lot of other people will figure it out. I'm slow, not fast, you know, but this is so obvious. And I just sit, then I started to try to buy food in San Francisco and I had to go to the Quaker store and the Seventh day Adventist store and Chinatown and Japantown and Lebanese town. And it's like, <laughs> I mean, you couldn't get all the food in one store, you know, and the farmer's market for the organic vegetables. And I said, this is silly. Did you have some sort of career path in your mind at the time? You were going around looking for all this food? I was doing light shows for... Uh, party promoting, right? And no, no, not, not party, party, but concerts. Concerts, yeah, concerts. You know, I did the first light show. In fact, I have the poster over here. Somebody sent it to me a couple of years ago. The first time Jimi Hendrix played in mm -hmm. Ambassador Ballroom, Washington, D.C. I did the poster for it, you know, and so forth. It misspelled his name, D-R-I-C-K-S. <laughs> <laughs> and designed the whole light show for that and so forth. So that was happening in the background. And meanwhile, you're like out here at these different yeah. restaurants. Uh, and my partner and I were, no, this is just, this is still San Francisco. And we were selling psychotropic, you know, we were selling mescaline and peyote and psilocybin. And, you know, we strongly believed in plant medicine. And so we were 
we were dealers, you know, but not in drug drugs, you know, not in speed or methadone or amphetamines or anything like that and so forth. And so that's how we supported ourselves. And then I went to Boston, yeah, to study with Michikushi and and they had a food co-op, you know, which once a month people come in and order stuff and they'd share it. And then it was in the basement on Newberry Street. And I took it over and made a store of it, you know, and that became Air One. But I felt really good. You know, for the first time in my life, I was asymptomatic and I wasn't taking drugs and I was eating well. And, and I loved this store because nobody came in and <laughs> I could read. <laughs> Here's the kid again, right? <laughs> I could read. And like when somebody came in to buy something, like, oh, okay, and I have to put a marker in my book <laughs> and take care of the customer. And then one day a customer came in and asked me some questions. And it, that one customer asked me, if, how did I know my oats were organic? And another one asked me, if, how did I know my hain oil was cold pressed? And I said, well, the oats I buy from the Mennonites, you know, they don't lie. And hain says right on the label, you can get cold pressed. So of course it's cold pressed, you know. And then, and then after they left, you know, being still being kind of a journalist, you know, I was like, well, I don't really know that's true. You know, I lied to my customer. And so I wrote to Hain. And then a few days later, the oats came again from Pennsylvania. And every oat bag that came in, I was taking it off the truck like this. I could read the label. It said the National Oat Company, Des Moines, Iowa. Hmm. And that's strange, you know. And wonder why it says that. <laughs> so I phoned up the woman there and asked her about her organic farming program. And she was very nice and said, what? Huh? 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 What's organic? Huh? And she just, just was so puzzled by all my questions. And she finally said, honey, we just buy oats and roll them. <laughs> 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 and the letter came from the next week. It said, there's no such thing as cold pressed oil. It's all cold processed. Every oil is hexane extracted and cold processing is when you lower the temperature and take off the stearates, but we still use the word cold pressed. And I was so mad. And that's when I decided to replace every single product in the store with a farmer or a farm I knew and visited. And I didn't trust, again, is that trusting again, you know? I didn't trust the natural food business. I didn't trust the natural food establishment at all. I didn't trust people who said to use the word organic. And so I was going to make Arwan the real deal. In an interesting way, I think that DNA exists to this day. I don't know who the owners are. It's been sold a couple of times and it's really big now, but that DNA was planted by that experience, you know, being in the store and finding out that I was selling things that were fraudulently labeled, which I didn't like. Would you describe yourself at that time as being business minded or were you more ethically minded with some understanding of how business works? Because when you make that kind of decision, I'm going to get rid of everything in the store and replace it all with this probably higher priced supplies, like that doesn't sound like the strategy that's going to get the books into the black <laughs> as quickly as possible. Well, the overhead was really low and I wasn't, I wasn't paying myself. I was still living off savings from mm. my drug deals. <laughs> so, <laughs> thanks to mushrooms. <laughs> and I actually didn't like business. I had a pretty strong antipathy to business. I didn't, didn't like business at all. I thought about becoming a co-op because we grew up in the, the Berkeley co-op. I thought about different ways you could organize yourself. And in the end, I, I realized that being a business actually gave you the most freedom of all. And of course, that freedom can go both ways. 
as it has. But I felt like if your purpose was clear and kind and honest, that business was fine. It was a really great vehicle. That's all you're talking about. These are vehicles, you know. And I learned that I didn't know much about business. That's what I learned. (laughs) But it didn't stop me. I mean, even had people from Harvard coming over because we got big, pretty big. You know, we had rail cars and big warehouses. And I had 3,000 accounts, wholesale accounts within six years. Did it start as a one-man show with you in that store? And then it kind of expanded from there based on the decisions you made? Yeah. Yeah, I had about 100 and, well, more than 100 employees. And we were in South Boston then. We had a bigger store. And then we opened the second store, Cambridge. Like I said, we had a couple of rail cars. We had a mill. We had, we made things. We manufactured. And then we opened a store on Beverly Boulevard in Los Angeles. That was the third store. And had you met David Brower at that time? I met David Brower when I was 12, 13 years old in Yosemite and Porcupine Flats. And then there was this tall guy, you know, like he's really tall. <laughs> and I hadn't, I, hadn't, I hadn't grown yet. You know, I was still a little shrimp. I mean, I'm six feet tall then, but I must have been 4'11 or less then. I don't know. Maybe for I'm sorry, he's like this towering guy with massive white hair. And I can't say as I really liked him at that moment. He seemed right. kind of rough and he later became a huge friend and mentor and I was with him just before he died. And he sort of passed the torch on to you when he died, right? He said some things to me, yeah, which I've never recounted. Yeah, no. <laughs> and well. <laughs> Would you describe that moment as a moment where you became more focused on the environment in the way that you are today versus before that moment? I think so, yeah. I mean, it wasn't like taking an oath, an oath or a promise, you know, like, oh, I promise, Dave, you know. It was deeper than that. It was kind of otherworldly. I mean, he was leaving this world and he had done so much. I don't know of anyone in the United States who had done more. I don't think anybody has or had. And he was so sweet and and he was really quite humble then. And at least as I knew him, not the gruff person I met when I was 12. (laughs) And it's like a transmission. And that makes me look like I'm in a special. I don't feel that at all. He might have been doing it to everybody he saw, you know, those last two days. But it felt like a transmission in that sense, like it was transmitted as opposed to, okay, here's the deal. You know, here's the list. Here, take the list or something like that. It wasn't transactional. It was something else. For the listener who's not familiar with his impact on the environment, can you give us just a synopsis of what that means? Well, I started, he didn't start the Sierra Club, John Muir did, but he, he made the Sierra Club what it is today, you know, mm-hmm. a very powerful membership organization. It's the biggest membership environmental organization in the world to this day. And he did many, many things, many parks that exist today we owe to David Bauer, you know, for campaigning, lobbying, pointing out, organizing. But the one we probably owe the most to is the Grand Canyon because it was going to be dammed 
and that dam was proposed. And uh, what was the guy, Floyd? What was his last name? I forget the guy at BLM. I forget his name. Anyway, it's just on the tip of my tongue. But And then, you know, I mean, campaigns and big full-page ads. And, and I think the BLM was saying, well, you know, if it's flooded, you can go down in boats and you can see the Grand Canyon better. <laughs> <laughs> like like Powell, right? Like, and then they ran an ad in the New York Times and other places said, well, should we flood the Sistine Chapel so you can see the ceiling better? I mean, <laughs> it's astounding, isn't it? This sort of othering of people and nature. Yeah. You talked yeah. about before. Yeah. I mean, and it's so interesting because, you know, the Colorado now is on allocation as it was yesterday, you know, for the first time ever. Ever, ever, because of mega drought in the West. And, and so had they dammed it, that dam would just be sitting mostly empty, you know, today. So we owe so much to David. And then he started other organizations. I can name them. He, but I think the most important thing he did is he mentored people and so many activists came out of his influence, you know, from his influence and his activity. Mm. And he was a giant. He really was, you know, like irreplaceable, you know, and he's a, a good climber. I was a climber. He was a really great climber, and but he was climbing in friggin' tennis shoes, you know, like <laughs> doing first ascents, you know, mm-hmm. in Yosemite and other places, you know, like he, he was, uh, he was on one hand a guy's guy, you know, he was just amazing athlete and brave and courageous you know and so forth. but boy i mean he's like he was our throw you know he was the throw for our generation and what about the importance of george washington carver on the science of what you call farming forward how did you come across his work and why did it mean so much to you i came across it the first time in erwan i mean i'd heard of him of course but what was interesting is that what I did as a weaver, what I, what I did was start to find farmers who could grow food for us. We didn't have enough organic food. There was some vestigial organic farmers who had never became industrial or chemical farmers, and we bought from them for sure. But when it came to rice, that wasn't the case. There was the Lundberg Brothers in California, and that was it. And no one else grew organic rice. And so through a relationship with of all people, Gloria Swanson, who was alive then, I met a guy named Carl Garrett, and he was a, I call him a Czech farmer. I think he was second generation Czech or third. I don't know. He used the term, so I, and I'm saying he was Czech, but, and he had a farm and Lone Pine. So I went down there to convince him to grow organic rice for Erwan, but his farmers were African American. He owned the land, but, mm-hmm. The guys who knew how to grow rice were African American, and I, I they're the nice, they were really nice. That's when I started to like, wait a minute, you know, how come they know how to grow rice and Carl doesn't really? <laughs> and then you go back, you kind of pull that string on the flower bag and go back, and you go right back to enslavement and the first enslaved African Americans brought to this country and. It's unimaginable to me to be with Ghana today or something, you know, different, you know, but to be taken, kidnapped, I mean, rounded up and then 
put in stockades and then you know you're going to be put, you see ships, you don't even know where the ship is necessarily, the big ship, you're going to be put on ships, you're going to be taken somewhere, you don't know where it is. You kind of have a hunch what you're going to, you're going to be a slave, but I mean, you don't know really what you're going to or why. And once the word went out, that is the word went out, of course, you know, in the communities that people who felt threatened or like they could be enslaved, the women would sow seeds into their hair and rice seeds and other seeds. I can't imagine the prescience and the faith that that would entail, you know. And then you're 40 days at sea in a horrible, horrible situation below deck, you know, chained, fed, you're pooping and peeing right beneath yourself. I mean, the whole thing is so, so unbelievably degrading and horrific and life-threatening. And then you're on land and then you're chained again and then you're sold and you don't even know what that means because, you know, you don't understand the language, but you know you're transferred, then you're on land again, you still have those seats. And then eventually you have a shack, a place to live and so forth, you know, and then you start to become a gardener and a farmer, you know, and then you grow rice because they were growing rice in Africa, of course, you know, and you haven't forgotten how to to grow because West African farmers were really good growers. And they had really good techniques. They used terra preta just like you have an Amazon biochar. They understood the use of that. And so over the decades and centuries, the white plantation owners realized that those who were enslaved actually knew a hell of a lot about agriculture because they could grow stuff and it tasted good and it really worked. And they were doing it with very minimal inputs and tools and so forth. You know, they were, and that really, was the basis of Tuskegee Institute's research on agriculture and George Washington Carver. You know, it really was a legacy from people who were brought over from Africa and, and so forth. And in the reason that his work had so much meaning was that whole area, I figure it was called in Arkansas and in Alabama and so forth. But I mean, it was very, very rich soil, very rich soils, perfect for cotton. And the cotton farmers had played out the soil. I mean, they just, they just destroyed it. Planning con, planning con, planning con, but they really did nothing to restore the soil. And so George Washington Carver, who really induced cover crops and rotation and, you know, growing peanuts both as a source of protein, but also as a source of legumes that would put nitrogen back in the soil. So, I mean, this all came from that heritage. And in America, we don't really, I don't think we understand that. Well, there's people like Leah Panaman and others who saw Fire Farm who, Karen Washington and some amazing, amazing, amazing people who are Jamila Norman. Uh, these are all black women who do know and are bringing it back and talking about it and educating and teaching and these foodways, which were brilliant and healthy and health giving. I wonder. I mean, this may sound racist, I hope it doesn't, but when we see the LeBron James and we see the physique and the genetics, you know, of so many people, you know, whether it's the four by 100 women's relay or at the Olympics or, you know, again and again and again and again, you know, the Cassius Clay or whatever, you know, Muhammad Ali and so forth, you know, it's like, yeah, these people knew how to eat and (laughs) 
they knew how to feed themselves, you know. Black Americans knew how to feed themselves, you know. And I remember it really well because it was the only place I was safe again was in black communities and black farms. And when I was down south, man, where was the best food? You know, it was amazing, <laughs> you know. And so again, you know, this beautiful understanding, you know, and knowledge has its origins. And it's one of the many blessings that we have from the African community, nay, African, and then finally African American community, you know. I mean, we can go to music and other things as well, but I mean, just that alone is a treasure. What did you mean when you say that regeneration is nature's default mode? Well, when you stop harming nature, cutting, poisoning, you know, burning, clear cutting, scraping, <laughs> all the things we do to nature, nature starts to regenerate instantly. It's what life does. It could almost be a synonym for life. And what's important about regeneration is that we are the same. It's not like it, that's what nature does. All 30 trillion cells in your body and my body are regenerating every nanosecond or we wouldn't be having this conversation. Yeah, like when you put that in your book, you said you, <laughs> because your cells are regenerating, you wouldn't be able to read this. Exactly. Otherwise, you wouldn't be able to read this line in this book. Right. Yeah. The thing about regeneration is a word, is a concept and so forth, is that we are it. It mm-hmm. is in us. We do it every day. We do it. And we do it by self-care. We do it by the way we take care of our children, we take care of our pets, we take care of our garden, we take care of other things. We're always doing things that put life at the center of our decisions and actions. And that really is the core principle of the book Regeneration. And, and it's the same thing, you know, which is if we put that at the core of what we do, what we make, how we serve, how we organize ourselves, the products we make, what we make them out of, the ways we create the raw materials, where we farm, the way we gather our cellulose and our fiber and all that sort of stuff, you know, we will reverse global warming. But there's an idea that somehow we can do it technologically. And that goes back to your question earlier about othering climate. We're othering the problem. You know, we're saying we're going to fix it. And mm-hmm. there's no it to fix. <laughs> because it means it's something else. And it's a very, with all due respect to my gender, a very male way of looking at the world, you know, and like, hey, I'll fix it for you. <laughs> You, you can't fix it because nature never makes a mistake. It's only we who make mistakes. And so getting in alignment with biology and life, you know, which is what we have to do. If we don't do it, we'll be just excused. You know, you're excused. <laughs> we don't need you anymore. The earth is, is fine. It does, like I said, it doesn't make mistakes and so forth. And the climate is doing exactly what it's supposed to be doing right now. It's responding to what we're doing down here on the land, it's responding. And so in that sense, we should see global warming as a, uh, we're being homeschooled. That's what mm. we're being homeschooled by. And gently, really, at least it's been very gentle for decades and we kind of ignore it, ignore it, ignore it, ignore it. So all the lessons and all the teachings are right there. There is not some arcane thing we have to figure out in order to you know, reverse global warming, it's right in front of us. I think recently I wrote, I think I wrote to somebody 
You know, if we survive this and we'll look back and say, isn't that amazing? They had, they had the means and the solution to reverse global warming right underneath their feet the whole time and they didn't even see it. <laughs> and that's true. You put a number to it, 11 years or so before we go off this cliff. Is that I don't, I don't think still I the case? 2030 is just a demarcation point. It's nine years now. Yeah, I mean, what scientists are saying is that, you know, if we go past certain thresholds that you can get irreversible warming, which is that the earth warms all by itself. We do, doesn't need any help from us anymore. That is what freaks scientists out, climate scientists out. And what is, it is what we want to avoid for sure. You know, we don't really know what that threshold is, but 1.5C is as good a guess as anything. The problem with 1.5C is that if you walk up to anybody on the street and ask them what it means, they will, I don't know. <laughs> so, so here we have this. <laughs> or they'll say, yeah, it has something to do with climate. And then you say, you know, can you, you know what 1.5C is in Fahrenheit? And they're going, no, not really. And so I'm just saying is the language, the way we're communicating about it is guaranteed to really have people check out on us. You know, they don't, they don't get it. And it's not because they don't care, because not because they're caring human beings, because we've communicated to each other in a way that almost ensures that 98% of the population is disengaged, which it is. It's disengaged, not doing anything. Well, you've put out some pretty provocative concepts such as sustainability should not be the goal. You've said that what we need are unreasonable goals. You've talked about an idea of, of stolen health. How do all those tie together? Well, stolen health working backwards is what Pepsi-Cola and Coca-Cola do to our youth. And they use Michael Jackson when he was alive, Beyonce now. They use black and brown entertainers, you know, pay them a fortune, you know, to run ads to make these soft drinks cool. And the interesting thing about it is that the black and brown entertainers, actually Jennifer Lopez is over the, you know, they have more influence on white children than white entertainers do. <laughs> white children look up to them more. But in any case, you know, you have companies like Pepsi saying, oh, we make Pepsi out of renewable energy. No, you missed the point. You're stealing health. You're causing type 2 diabetes. You're causing obesity. You're causing things that are going to punish those children for the rest of their lives, you know, and you're saying, I make it with renewable energy. And I said, so I think we have to get the sequence right. And again, it's this thing about, oh, if we use renewable energy, we get a hall pass to the next century. No, that's not true. We have to do that. Of course, we have to stop emitting CO2 from combustion. We have to stop burning everything for that matter. Just stop burning, you know, and lighting things on fire. But, but that in itself is not going to solve the problem because it presumes that those fossil fuels are the sole cause or the main cause. And that's not true. And what's the cause is our economic system, which is extractive. And it takes, it takes mercilessly, uniformly everywhere in the world. It's taking life. And whether it's from the oceans or from the forest, from people, from cultures, from land, mm. soil, from animals, from, 
you name it, you know, and it's extractive and that's degeneration. And so if we have to step back and say, wow, wow, yeah, that is, we're, we're in a completely degenerative system. Uh huh. And look at the results, biodiversity, you know, acidification of the ocean, global warming, poverty, migration, I mean, flooding, I mean, just, you know, drought is like, oh, uh-huh, yeah, that's what happens when you keep taking, you know. And so when you get that kind of clarity, then you look at Pepsi-Cola and you look at Stolen Health and go, what are you smoking over there at Pepsi-Cola headquarters? I mean, you get it? You know, and this is true for many other companies too. So I'm picking on Pepsi, you know, but I can pick on Coke and so forth, you know, and they have sustainability programs and this and that, you know, we're going to, some of our bottles, plastic bottles have recycled plastic in them. You know, it's like, you got to be kidding. And these little half measures are somehow going to make a difference. Not going to make a difference. What's going to make a difference is understanding how we are harming each other how we are harming the world, the living world, and how we've broken all these connections between what's common sense and kindness and how we've lost our sense of generosity and compassion for each other, for the living world, how we've just completely fractured nature into bits and pieces and habitat fragmentation and loss of species and poisons and pesticides and glyphosate and we've made nature into little bits and pieces you know that's not nature anymore it's in its system it's one system and so regeneration is really the word and the understanding is the way way through because it's something we can all do it's something we all understand it's something that's innate in us and it addresses things like stolen health. What would make the biggest difference within these nine years? Is it a trickle-down situation from the so-called man at the top who's calling all these shots? Is it a ground-level grassroots type of a change that will make the biggest impact over this next decade? Where do you think the focus should be? We've been all schooled in the idea that this is what you should do or you can make a difference, you being a person singular, right? And at the same time, we've sort of looked to international organizations like the United Nations Framework on Climate Change and the IPCC, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, and then our own national governments and maybe the big corporations and so forth. As these are one, these are the people who should get this shit done. You know, I mean, they set the policy, set the regs, do it, you know, and so forth. They haven't done it. And then we go back and say, well, I've been told, you know, to use cold water in my washing machine and to stop eating so much meat and no more plastic straws and that kind of thing. Oh, yeah. That's really, really important one, the plastic straws. You know? And it's like, <laughs> and you know, again, unless, you're not awake that that is not adequate to the task at hand. That's not going to make it. We're not going to make it. If in, if every individual did it, it's like, so what? And yet individuals should do things. And what I'm trying to say in regeneration is there's another way to look at this, which is agency, not individuation and not these huge organizations that are basically dysfunctional and so slow that what they do actually is ineffective. And that would be national governments and the conference of the parties. And in between there is the huge, huge middle and it's really middle out. It's not grassroots or 
past hops. It's actually right there. And every one of us has agency. We have our family. We have our friends. You have agency. You have a podcast. That's agency. I mean, you've chosen a life, you know, both in your, you know, in your teaching in person, you know, and, but also in the podcast, you know, that's agency. We have our schools, our churches, our synagogues, our temples. We have our companies. We have the groups we like to, you know, play sports with or play football or do this or we have all these different ways in which we connect to people in our communities and elsewhere. And that is where we have power. That is where we have power. And that is where we can make change. And it's hard to think, well, it's really, really big change has to be made. Otherwise, we're goners, you know. But actually, if you look at the body, where does big change happen in the body? It happens on the cellular level. That's where it happens. All disease starts in the cell, for example, and then inflammatory response. So the way we heal this is locally, regionally, communally, in community, in neighborhood, and in our church, our school, our club, our whatever. And people love to work together. They like to solve problems together. But the way climate has been communicated makes people feel like it's kind of a bummer. <laughs> like, or like, I mean, we've used, you know, blame and shame and guilt and threat and, you know, fear and, and we've thrown everything at it. And 98% of the world is disengaged because exactly because of the way we've communicated to people. And it doesn't mean that the science isn't dead on. I think it's dead on. Absolutely. The science is extraordinary. And it doesn't mean the activists who've been using blame and shame and guilt aren't right. I think they're right too. But the way we've communicated is guaranteed to make people numb. I think also capitalism in its current form we're seeing sort of this hyper casino style capitalism that is perpetuated from the people who have been othered for so many centuries, now finally wanting to get a piece of the pie. And so they're thinking to themselves as a collective, well, why should I have to now cut back and start to implement all these environment saving procedures and this the white guys have been out there all these centuries imperializing and colonizing and raping and plundering and I want to get my fair share because no one's going to give it to me. Right. So how do we break through that mentality and help people understand that it's this is a situation that's going to require all of us. You can't just sit around and wait for someone to save us in this dilemma that we find ourselves in. It's absolutely true. I mean, you know, just announced last week, Beyonce is a billionaire. Cool. Jay-Z is a billionaire. Cool. You know? Yeah. And part of me, me too, it says, well, damn right, it's about time. You know, I mean, that the, right. the, the, the inequities have been so, so badly tilted against brown and black people in this country and elsewhere too, in, in many cases. But that's why we need to step back, which is really say, okay, yeah, but what is our life? Why are we here? Because if we're here to just to be rich during the end game, I don't think that's a, a really worthy life goal, you know. And it's not that we say, oh, you know, give that money back or something. You don't deserve it. That's not the point. The point is, what are we going to do? And we are we, you know. And how do we create meaning? And the problem is that I think because of the 
of the anomie and the chaotic nature that the business world has created because it creates the political world. The political world is paid for by money. Money comes from where? It comes from business. So when we look at the fact that almost, you know, the vast majority of governments in the world are corrupt, we have to go right back to business again and say, come on, you know, really, why are you here? You know, what are you doing? And so we're in a very selfish world right now. And we're in a world where people are freaking out and going to want to like take care of themselves first. You know, you have people you know, going off into Idaho and, you know, <laughs> guns and food. <laughs> it's just crazy. It's the opposite of what we need to do. And the capitalist system is definitely reinforcing that, no question about it. And it's reinforcing our lowest common denominator, maybe, which is just self and selfishness, you know, and because everything we hear is so fear-based, you know, and we had four years of Trump because the whole thing was fear-based. A lot of people believe it and act on it. And people ask me, am I hopeful? I say, oh, heavens no. Because I'm not interested in hope, because hope is a pretty mask of fear. And what we need to be now is fearless and courageous, you know, not hopeful. And, you know, you say, what do you do about this? I think you start acting. And I also say, you know, I quote, you know, Andrew Huberman, but, you know, our beliefs do not change how we act in the world. We just think they do, but they don't. And the other thing is you can't change somebody else's belief. You can try, you can force them, but they don't really change their beliefs. You know, the only thing that changes our beliefs is action. It's the opposite of what we think. We think belief changes our actions the other way around. And if we want to change other people's beliefs, we act. And that's what we need to do. And regeneration is about action. It's all about action and connection. It's not about saying, we know you don't listen up. We're not saying that at all. We're just saying, come on, got it. We're in a tight spot. <laughs> that's the nicest thing you can say about humanity and so forth. Let's go do. It's about do. And I'm doing personally, you know, not, I'm not just writing and so forth, you know, and all sorts of things. But then I'm also doing it in my neighborhood and I'm also doing it in a, in a larger sense, you know, with the book and regeneration mm-hmm. and so forth. But, but we all have to do what we can do. And it's not about comparing, well, he or she does money, they have money, they can do this and I can. Everybody is important. Everybody's action is important. And the fact that action itself is the most important thing that you can do. And I learned that in the civil rights movement from black people. I think Winston Churchill also said it best when he said that Americans, you can always depend on us to do the right thing as soon as we've tried everything else. Yeah. Well, we're still trying other things, apparently. Right, right. We're trying to buy our way to optimum health. I want to wind this down because I want to respect your time. Last couple of questions. One is, how are you thinking about the idea of success these days? I mean, you've lived a long life. You've had a lot of experiences. You've had business successes. You've seen civil rights action. Like, what, what do you, How do you think about success these days in a way that you know, if someone who's younger was kind of looking up to you and, and they're looking at a Beyonce and a Jay-Z and saying, well, that's what I want. Like, what, what would you 
say to that person in terms of success? Never try to succeed. Actually, I never tried to succeed. I actually tried. You, you talked about unreasonable goals. That's what you want to point towards. And two things go to where you lit up. Why we, why would you be lit up? You lit up because you're learning and you're engaged and, uh, you know, go there. That's where you want to go. If you don't know something about what lights you up, cool. You'll know a lot soon because you care about it because you're curious. So success as a goal is puny. It's really, it's an outcome. It's not a goal. It's just an outcome of happens in certain times in certain ways for certain people and certain things. The most important thing is being true to self and don't let other, other people or this culture or this time or Instagram influence you on who you are and what your self is and so forth. And as soon as you are mimicking other people's behavior or dress or code or ethos and so forth, you're no longer you and your shadow and the shadow, even if it succeeds, is going to be miserable. Even if it gets rich, is going to be miserable. And so the thing about unreasonable goals is that if they're reasonable, that means you know how to do them, you know, because they're, it's reasonable. I know how to do that. It's a reasonable goal. Unreasonable goals are forcing functions. That is, you go, shoot, I don't know how to do that. Well, then what happens? You start to learn, listen. You start to become imaginative, creative. You start to look at things in different ways. You are flummoxed in some way. That's good. You know, you kind of like, wow, I don't get it, you know, and you're going to get it because you've set the stage for yourself. You've made it bigger, broader, huger, and it's going to draw out that bigger, broader sense of self of you that you have in you. It's there. It's in everyone. In Theravadan, you know, Buddhism and Jack Kornfield's my teacher and, and so forth, but he talks about the premise in Theravadan is that within all of us is the one who knows and in the one who knows. <laughs> we do know and we know what's the right thing to do. We know why we're here. We know what we want to do. We know what we want to be. We really do. And is it all covered up? Is it fret and fear and desire and all that? Yeah, of course, we're humans, you know, we're imperfect. But you can find that when you have an unreasonable goal that really is transcendent in the sense that it may be something you've never accomplished in your whole life. That's a really cool goal, actually. That is really a cool goal, you know. And you have something to live for as long as you're here, you know, that has meaning and purpose and gives you a sense of belonging to the human race, you know, because it's a beautiful race and it does beautiful things and there's no reason that you can't be that person. Love that. You've also said that it helps you to, to have more spaciousness and creativity, more unreasonable the goal, the more creativity you have to have, which I love. Final question for you. If I am a single mother with a bunch of kids, I haven't quite made my way up to Maslow's hierarchy of needs to self-actualization yet. I'm still in my basic needs state. What can I do? What would I do? I'm probably not going to read the book Regeneration, although I'm appreciative of you, you know, having it out there in the world, right? So if I'm in that category of persons, I'm just so busy and I'm trying to get all this stuff done. What's one or two things that I can do in my normal life, working my two or three jobs, barely making ends meet to help be a part of the solution? You can go to your school and make sure they're not feeding your children crap. Number one, stop all that. That's not cool. These are my kids. Don't feed them ultra-processed foods. I don't want to see vending machines in the school. 
with Coke and Pepsi and Doritos and Cheetos. I want my children to be nourished. They're my children. I want them to grow up to be healthy young women and men who can make a difference in this world. And it starts right here at the school. I interviewed someone else who talked about how people don't realize how much power they actually have to make those kinds of choices, or at least to put them to a vote and make, make those kinds of changes. Yeah, so. I, mean, I can give lots of other examples, but it, it has to be something that's meaningful to her mm-hmm. now, not out there, not somebody's list, not somebody's advice. Forget that. It has to be what makes her life better now mm. and her children's life better. And those are the things that will make a difference. And those are the things that she can do or the, or, or the things that she can do have to encompass that. And that's what she would want to do. And that is kind of a story for everybody, which is that we all want to make things better. Okay. Let's make them better. And if we are not making the world better for the 4.1, 4.3, I guess, billion people who are poor, then we're not serious about climate. Mm. We're not serious. We're kidding ourselves. It's a privilege talking to themselves in a bubble. And, and as I said, you know, this woman is barely making it. I mean, if you want to know what's causing poverty, find out who's benefiting. There you'll find the cause. So she and others can go that way too, which is, hello, (laughs) whether it's wages or benefits or lack of benefits or whether it's the landlords or, you know, and so forth. It's like, go make, go make trouble, you know. (laughs) As John Lewis calls it, good trouble. Good trouble. trouble. Yeah, yeah. Beautiful. Well, thank you so much. I want to wrap this up by just looping back around to childhood. You mentioned your favorite activity being outside. It allowed you to express your curiosity. And then later on in life, you started to get more involved in journalism and you make a distinction. I'm not a scientist. I'm a journalist. The difference is I don't have the answers. I have the curiosity. And so it looks like you've definitely fallen into line with your purpose, your path. And I just want to acknowledge you for putting yourself out there, taking the leaps of faith, making your voice heard because those, you know, again, people may look at you and think, Oh, you know, of course he's, he's able to do that. He started all these cool businesses and, you know, he's was in the right place at the right time, but it takes a lot to still voice your opinion and to ask the hard questions and to write a book called ending the climate crisis in one generation. It's very provocative. And that's, that's the subtitle of your new book, regeneration, which it's inspiring. It's inspiring to know you and to be able to sit down and talk with you and ask you these questions. And I'm going to certainly do more from my end. Uh, this has been a life-changing experience for me, just in not just the interview, but in the research of the interview, because I've watched documentaries now and I've, you know, I've read the book. So I'm, I'm excited to shift my own narrative around what it means to be an environmentalist. So thank you very much for that. Thanks for coming. Oh, thank you. No, and I, I think you have a PDF. Give me your address. I'll send you a hard copy. I don't have one myself. <laughs> <laughs> I know the feeling. No, it's really beautiful, really beautiful photographs and just a really great message. You leave no stone unturned, no pun intended, but you, you talk about it from every angle. And I think that's really important. And it's a very plain talk style of writing, which is also, I think, really important to get through to the average person. 
Yeah, I just want to acknowledge you for really taking the time to read the book and to understand what is understandable for you. And <laughs> again, but it means a lot to me. You know, somebody, I remember being with a bunch of writers and they were sort of kvetching about the books not being bestsellers or whatever. And I didn't realize that it's not how many read your book, it's who. Mm, it's I love who. that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So you are definitely a big who in my world. So thank you for reading the book. And it really does mean a lot to me. You know, you work hard. One works hard at what you do. But at the end of the day, it's to serve others, you know, and I'm very happy that if it has been of value or is value to you, that makes me very grateful. Of course. All right, man. Thank you so much. Look forward to seeing you again at some point in person. Absolutely. Thank you for tuning in to my interview with Paul Hawken. Paul's new book, Regeneration, is available everywhere books are sold. So definitely check that out. And to learn more about his work, I would suggest starting with paulhawken.com. That's P-A-U-L-H-A-W-K-E-N.com. He's also got tons of talks on YouTube. And of course, we'll put links to everything in the show notes, which you can find at lightwatkins.com slash tunnel. Speaking of lightwatkins.com, while you're there, you'll see my announcement that the audio book for Knowing Where to Look is out. It's read by me, of course, and it includes bonus commentary about the backstory of some of the doses of inspiration. So if you are a fan of the hardcover version of Knowing Where to Look, you will certainly love the audio book as it is a perfect companion to that hardcover version. So definitely check that out when you can. You can also get information on my Happiness Insiders community, which has a three-day free trial and a complimentary seven-day meditation kickstart if you join. And being a part of that community will change your life from the inside out. Finally, if you can subscribe and leave a rating or review for this podcast, that would be the best way to share these conversations. Ratings matter much more than you probably realize when it comes to making this podcast more searchable. All you do is you just click the name of the podcast on the screen of your phone, and then you'll see all the previous episodes. Scroll down and you'll see five stars and just click the star on the right and you've left a rating. It took 10 seconds. If you want to go further than that, write a couple of lines about what you liked about these conversations, you've left a review. So thank you very much in advance for that. And I hope to see you back here next week for the next story from the end of the tunnel. And until then, as always, keep trusting in your intuition, keep following your heart, and please, please keep taking those leaps of faith. And if no one's told you recently that they believe in you, I believe in you. Thank you and have a great day. If you want to get a little extra nudge when it comes to following your heart and taking leaps of faith and believing in yourself each day, then you want to sign up for my free daily dose of inspiration email. You'll join 30,000 other subscribers who receive a short inspirational story or anecdote that's meant to inspire you to become the best version of yourself each day. You can sign up at lightwatkins.com and you'll get your first inspirational message as early as tomorrow. Again, just go to lightwatkins.com. You can sign up for free and you'll wake up each morning inspired to be the best version of yourself.